From 8th Street to 8 Mile Road, from I-5 to Highway 99, Podcast Stockton. The show all about the great life in Stockton, California. This is Podcast Stockton. Welcome to Podcast Stockton, episode 106 for October 30th, 2016. Welcome back to all of our returning listeners. If this is your first time listening to Podcast Stockton, thanks for checking out the show. I'm Matt Beckwith. And I'm Greg Barr. We'd love to hear your feedback. Call or text us at 209-565-3229 or email us at podcaststockton at gmail.com. And happy birthday, Greg Barr. <laughs> you said you weren't going to tell me that. <laughs> well, thank you. You old, old man. Actually recording on your birthday. Actually coming into the Outback Studios and recording on your birthday. Happy birthday, sir. Thank you, thank you. Matt, what do you uh what do you think about heights? <laughs> now or or before yesterday? <laughs> yesterday you uh you participated in this over the edge event for community hospice. Yeah, that was that was frightening. Thanks thanks for uh for coming out and yelling at the top of your lungs cuz I could hear you all the way all the way from the top of the medico dental tower uh, i could hear you that's uh, over 150 feet high 12 stories up yeah I-, I could hear you yeah so the over the edge for community hospice fundraiser was um, this last weekend where the community hospice raised over a hundred thousand dollars by having folks raise money and rappel down the side of the medico dental building and um, as you alluded to, I'm afraid of heights, so that was a little nerve-wracking for me. But um, we could I, tell, we we could tell from down there on the ground that <laughs> there there was tell. some hesitation in the beginning of your descent. Well, just wait till you watch the video, and you'll see exactly what that hesitation is. It's just me asking a lot of questions and confirming what does what and what you know, and all of the things that I had just learned five minutes before. Because they tell you they they train you, they fully train you. What they don't tell you is that that training only lasts about two minutes. So I had to confirm a few things before I went over the edge. <laughs> it looked like a really great event. There was a lot of uh, participants that rappelled down in a little festival down on the ground where we were watching you and getting to uh, engage in some family zones and rock climbing, and there was food there as well. Once I leaned back, which is terrifying, just to lean back and trust that the ropes will hold you, which thankfully they did, but then you start hearing all the screams and it was interesting to be able to pick out voices like yours and my my daughter's, my wife's, my, my granddaughter's voice. I could hear my granddaughter, I swear, from 12 stories up. That's pretty amazing. Now you're in a in an exclusive group of people who have rappelled down the medical dental building, a, a very historic and formerly tallest building in Stockton. I, um, I was also there in the morning because I wanted to see Ralph Womack. Um, go uh, take the uh, take the the plunge or go over the edge and and he um, he posted video. They took video of it and he did it like a pro. I mean, he literally just walked completely completely perpendicular to the side of the building and just walked straight down like it was just a, a day in the park. So uh, I tried to emulate that. Um, I didn't do as well, but I survived. That's all I cared about. Well, that's good. It looked like a great event. Uh, Hundred thousand dollars is amazing. Wow, um, and I think that's a, a good cause. It's it's close to to your own heart, right? Yeah, yeah. Community Hospice was the organization that helped my dad in his last uh, last days of life in uh, in Merced and Community Hospice services Merced County, Stanislaus, San Joaquin County, and a couple of uh, neighboring um, counties. But they actually were there for us. So when I found out about this um, event, I couldn't help but uh, but jump right in and thankfully not jump right over. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, thanks again to everybody that supported me and that uh, went out there and supported Repellers and helped that organization raise a lot of money. So now that we've survived repelling off of a building, now we have to um, now we have our, our our sights on the next big thing I would say in Stockton coming up Tuesday, November eighth, which would be the uh, end of a specific brand <laughs> of Facebook posts. And <laughs> I hope the yeah I hope and the very important task of selecting our leaders and policies for our future yeah election day is right around the corner i hope by now it would be too late to register to vote in california so i hope you are registered to vote and if you are registered to vote i hope every one of you has already voted or is going to get out there to vote i know um i know greg you're a 
you're not a um, vote early person, right? No, I vote at the polling place. Yeah, me, me too. Something about the, the activity of going in. I think there's been discussion at the state level of, of pushing even harder to do vote by mail. And I think some states are actually mandating it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you vote by mail or vote in person. It just matters that you vote. It's, it's very important that you have your voice in the direction of our community, uh, be it at the national or state or local level. Uh, you have a lot of control over that, and even more so, I think, at the local level. I'm very much about local politics, and you know, sometimes our leaders can be decided by you know, 5,000 people or less, depending on the election. And that is pretty amazing when you think we're a city of 300,000. Yeah, and certainly if you look at the primary election in June, there were some city council races that were separated by hundreds of votes, and that's that's incredible to think of that. And that really proves to the point that your vote does make a difference. Uh, I think it's really great news that we have a record number of registered voters for this election that was uh, reported from the uh, San Joaquin Register of Voters. Yeah, and, you know, I, I wonder if it's, you know, I, as, a, as an onlooker, I wonder if it's the national um, stuff that's going on because I feel like we have just as much at stake here in Stockton. We have a mayor, a mayoral election. We have a few council seats. We have San Joaquin County Board of Supervisors, depending on where you live within the city, and a ton of measures and um, propositions that hopefully everybody's done their homework because the, the ballot guide's pretty thick. So hopefully you've done your homework, and certainly for the local races, I hope that's a draw to get people to get out there on Election Day. Uh, personally, I think that uh, my voting is more valuable in the local races because uh, I'm really getting to have some kind of say in, in what happens in my community. And that stuff reaches and touches you faster than anything that happens at the national level. Not that the national is not important, but, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to influence your community just by participating in the in the voting process, let alone getting involved in your community and being an, uh, an activist for the things that are important to you. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but I think as a community, we all need to do more to learn about local government, right? And and I think, you know, it's, it's not enough to say, I don't understand that stuff and just vote. No, that's Or just not vote. That's, that's what scares me is the people that think it's too confusing. They don't understand it. They don't do the research or take the time to learn more and just decide to sit it out. I, uh, I like citing this horror story that happened in Orange County where a gentleman was elected to uh, the school board. And he campaigned zero, posted zero signs. He just filled out his uh, his paperwork, and in that county, he just had to submit a fee. And under profession, he put teacher, which he hadn't taught in like something like five or ten years. And he got elected. And if you look up this uh, gentleman, I can't remember his name at the moment, but if you look up Orange County School of Board, there's this guy who was literally... He had to have been crazy. Oh. And he was completely disruptive to the entire process, would protest as a member of the trustee board, have signs up on his on the dais. It was it's this crazy, crazy thing. Wow. Don't let that happen to Stockton. <laughs> Get out and vote. Yes. Um, before our next episode comes out, um, election day will have come and gone. So do your part if you're registered and uh Get out there and vote. Tell your neighbors to vote. Tell your family members to vote. In this episode, we share some highlights from some previous interviews. First up is Todd Rustaller, CEO and Curator of History at the Hagen Museum. We're going all the way back to episode 26, where Matt and Rod interview Mr. Roostaller after hours at the museum in February of 2010. Yeah, that was a great interview all those years ago. I remember being there and thinking it was pretty cool um, to be in the museum after hours. Uh, Right now, the museum has a couple of great exhibits. They have the Medieval to Metal, the Art and Evolution of the Guitar, which is part of the uh, traveling 
exhibit from the National Guitar Museum, and they also have the Brubeck Jazz Ambassador exhibit. Both of them are on display until January 8, 2017. Have you seen either of these yet? No, but I definitely plan to make it out. The guitar one is pretty incredible and a lot of fun. I spent a couple hours just geeking out on every detail of every instrument that was there. And it was great to talk to Todd all those years ago. I run into him every now and then when I'm at the museum. And um, he's always good for a little bit of uh, information about what's going on at the Hagen. We started our interview years ago by asking him about his personal history in Stockton and then how he got started at the museum. I was born in San Francisco in June of 1950, moved here two weeks later. Uh, my dad was a, a pediatrician here for almost 50 years. Um, so I was here in 1950 to 1968 when I went away to Davis. Uh, came back in 1984. So you guys do the math. Uh, it's a long time. Yeah, I've I've been here. <laughs> You're a lifer. Quite, yeah, I'm a I'm a lifer. And interestingly enough, uh, I came back and uh, my three brothers. We had all scattered to the four winds, and uh, one by one, we all found our way back, like some type of migratory <laughs> beast, back, back to the place of our birth. Oh, more like salmon, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So Todd, what do you like about Stockton? Uh, I like a great deal about Stockton. Love the weather, most of the time. Uh, I'm a I'm I'm a flatlander. Uh, I don't like the cold. I I lived two years in South Lake Tahoe, and did not like that at all. Much <laughs> much too cold. Don't like shoveling snow. Um, um, my my favorite season is uh, probably autumn, and we don't have the kind of autumn that you have back east or anything. But it's a it's a great time of year. I love the Delta. I love the University of the Pacific. Uh, these were places I've lived. Probably all of the houses that I've lived in, the two houses I lived in as a kid, the the four houses I've lived in as an adult, they've all been within about a one and a half mile radius and there are there are neighborhoods that seem like old friends to me uh, and uh, I think the fact that Stockton with 300,000 plus people in the greater metropolitan area still can maintain a small town feel uh, I like that a great deal as well I liked the fact growing up in the 50s um, I can remember friends and I would have dirt clod fights in vacant lots when there were still vacant lots in this area. Um, I can remember staying out late on summer evenings. We, you know, our parents thought nothing of letting us stay out till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I lived right down the street from the museum on the corner of Rose and Baker. And my friends and I would come down to Victory Park. And this was the place in the evening you could catch toads and crawdads and watch the bats fly by. Um, I loved that. And then catching turtles uh, in the, uh, uh, out of the Calaveras by uh, uh, UOP. Strange memories. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my background is in archaeology. I did my undergraduate and graduate work at UC Davis, and um, along with a couple of my fellow graduate students, we started an archaeological consulting firm, which is still very successful up in Davis today. Give a shout out to Far Western Anthropological Research Group. And while I liked archaeology, my heart wasn't really in it, and I didn't know that until this job came along. It, I was prompted somewhat also by the fact that I had recently gotten married. We had a daughter. And since my wife hates camping, and you got to camp a lot as an archaeologist, <laughs> I had the um, choice of watching my family grow up in photographs while I was out playing Indiana Jones, and it, and it was never that exotic. <laughs> I, I, I was waiting for that reference. No, but it was it was never anything like that. Or applying for this job when it came up. And I originally applied for it and was turned down. I still have the rejection letter. I have it framed and uh, I will have it back up in my office uh, soon. I, I like to show it to prospective employees, tell them not to become discouraged. But then I came in as curator of history. And 
I was a Stockton native, so there I had that going for me. I think the one thing that made my job so much easier was the fact that my mother was also a Stockton native, born here in Stockton, and she was a graduate of UC Berkeley history major, and she knew Stockton history. So when I had a question, you know, rather than let anybody here know I didn't know the answer to it, <laughs> I'd give my mom a call, and uh, more often than not, if she didn't know the answer, she certainly could point me in the right direction. So um, I had a great mentor in her. Also, um, there was a, a, a local um, professor at uh, Delta College who I had while I was in high school at Stag, fellow by the name of Chuck Block, who's still around. Chuck, if you're listening, uh, I'm glad you've joined the 21st century as well. Um, he was a, a mentor as well, and uh, uh, I, I owe a lot to both of those individuals. And so the, the Hagen's been a staple in, in this community for as long as I've been around. What's, what's the history of, uh, of the Hagen? The museum actually opened its doors to the public in June of 1931. It had come about because a number of people very concerned that we were losing a lot of our tangible links with the past. And so they formed what uh, today is still known as the Sam Joaquin Pioneer and Historical Society. It was incorporated in February of 1928, and the purpose was to build a museum here in Stockton. There was no museum. So originally it was going to be just a history museum, and they were bringing in funding. After a year of fundraising, they had less than $700 in the bank, and it looked kind of bleak. Two folks back in New York um, said, listen, we'll give your historical society $30,000 and 180 paintings from uh, our family's art collection if you will expand the focus of your history museum to include an art wing. Well, you got 700 bucks in the bank. <laughs> what do you think they're going to say? Mm -hmm. right. And so they accepted the offer, and this was Bob McKee, Robert T. McKee, and his wife, Isla Hagen McKee. The Hagen's very wealthy uh, California family uh, who had put together through three generations, a wonderful art collection. They had moved back east in the 1890s, but they had always still kept a, uh, a link with California. They had friends out here. And Bob McKee, of course, who married Isla in New York in 1924, he was originally from Stockton. Hmm. And so he had a number of friends and relatives who sat on the board of trustees of that Sam Joaquin Pioneer and Historical Society. He knew that they wanted to build a museum. So he probably said, hey, honey, you know, you just inherited $10 million from your father. He passed away in March of 1929. You can give some of the paintings to the Met or the Boston Fine Arts Museum or uh, any of the East Coast museums. They'll put one or two on the walls. The rest will go into storage. Or we can give it to my good buddies back in Stockton. They're trying to build this museum, and I think it would be a, a great thing for this Admittedly, in, in 1929, uh, a small agricultural town in the center of the Central Valley. That's so, how we came about. Everything we've been through, yeah. Home to the stars and the stripes. Fly near your heart. Always stand up for... So tell me just how important it is for these school kids to come in and see the museum, see the art, and to, to get in touch with the history that's here at this museum. I think it's important on two levels. One, they'll go nuts if they stay in the classroom all the time. they got to get out every once in a while. But two, I think it's important for them to connect uh, through the, our two collections, both our art and our history collections. They're part of this community. This gives them a sense of place and a link to their heritage. Many of their their relatives go back generations here in Stockton. And even those who don't, you become more attached to a community if you know more about its history. And then on the art level, we keep cutting back in the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, art education receives but a fraction of the, the attention and certainly the financial resources that it once did. So if we can be an adjunct to that art education, and we have a tremendous uh, um, group of volunteers, our docent council, but we also have two great staff members, um, Lisa Cooperman, our curator of education, and her assistant, Janet Men, 
and the two of them come up with these fantastic programs. Um, the second Saturday of every month, we either have an art adventure or a family festival. We have our summer art workshop during the summer, surprisingly <laughs> enough. And these are all geared towards encouraging both the participants participation in and appreciation for arts, the fine arts, any kind of visual arts, even, even the performing arts every once in a while. Teachers work hard in putting all the artwork together and bringing it uh, to the museum so we can put it on display. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to open up the exhibit, share this with uh, a great number of people, hopefully. And if the weather cooperates, I think we'll have some pretty good numbers. Great. So the, the, the McKee show is in its 79th year, right? Yes. And um, that kicks off officially, you said Thursday, but you have some programs this weekend about that? Um, yep. Going back to that couple who helped put this together, Bob mm -hmm. McKee, um, the very year that the museum opened, he also established a special fund to pay for this exhibit on an annual basis. He was an art student. He studied uh, in San Francisco. And he really wanted the youth of this area to be encouraged to participate in the arts. That's why he established the exhibition and, and contest in the first place. And when he died in 1943, he established an endowment to make sure it would continue long past uh, his passing. And it has proven to be a very popular show. It is probably the best attended single day. When we kick this off this coming Saturday, We'll have, we have had anywhere from 14, 15,000, uh, 15, <laughs> 15, uh, 14 to 1,500 people come through the doors. And really, the only day that supersedes that, the very first day the museum was open, we had about 4,000 people come in that day, but we we're open from 9 until 9. Um, but on the, on the first Saturday of the McKee Show, our junior women's group, one of our uh, volunteer auxiliaries, will be hosting Cookies and Punch, gallons of punch, <laughs> thousands of cookies. And the, the kids, their parents, their uh, brothers and sisters, other family members, they love to come and see their artwork. And it's, it's quite, uh, I think it's quite an honor uh, to have your art hanging in the museum. And surprisingly enough, or possibly not too surprisingly, quite a number of artists who have gone on to some notoriety in the art community who have come from San Joaquin County, uh, a lot of them point back and say, you know, the first time I ever had anything on display was at the Hagen Museum with the McKee Show. Well, Todd, I can tell you, when my 10-year-old daughter, who's in the fifth grade, came home and uh, with her notice from her teacher that one of her pieces was selected to be in the exhibit, she was on cloud nine. I mean, she didn't come off that cloud for two days. That's excellent. So I'll see you at the Punch and Cookies table. We will table. absolutely be here <laughs> on Saturday. We're excited to uh, for her to um, show off her piece of work. So. Excellent. Nice job. Well, Punch and Cookies, a little expensive. Maintaining a museum, also very expensive. Tell us where you get the funding come from. The museum's funding does not come from any public coffers. The, the museum sits in the middle of this beautifully maintained municipal park. And I think it gives off the wrong impression. Quite a number of people believe that sits in a city park must be funded by the city. <laughs> Years ago, the city and the county both contributed a small amount of money to the museum. That dried up in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And so we received no city, no county, no state, no federal funding. It comes from the museum's endowment, generating about 50% of our annual operating income, and then from memberships, um, admission, museum store sales, a lot of grants, and those are the principal sources. So if I can encourage people to support the museum, they can do that in a number of ways. Probably the easiest is just come visit the museum. Uh, if money's tight, come on the first Saturday of every month because that's a free day. You can come, enjoy the museum, Hopefully, you'll come back on another day. If you really like what you saw and you want to help support some of the programs, become a member of the museum. Uh, you can get in touch with the museum to find out about our various museum uh, membership levels. And we've got a category to fit just about uh, anybody's price range. And if you really want to help out the museum, um, you can think about making a planned gift. We have. We're very fortunate in having a number of people who, through their association over the years with the museum, 
have really come to appreciate what we do here. And so they have made in their estate planning um, documents a provision for the museum. And that usually goes into the museum's endowment, which generates income on an ongoing basis. Wow. So do you have a favorite, personally, do you have a favorite uh, exhibit here at the Hagen that you've ever had? Um, I've got a couple of favorites. Um, one of the, one of my favorite history shows that we assembled here uh, in-house was called Camp, and it dealt with the evacuation and relocation of Japanese Americans in San Joaquin County, both to the, uh, the fairgrounds for the assembly center and then those who were shipped back to Rower, Arkansas. And it gave me a chance to uh, interact with the Japanese uh, American community locally, and we, I think we put together a very powerful show. That was back in 1988, I think. Um, more recently, the Pulitzer Prize, uh, there was an exhibition called Capture the Moment, and it featured Pulitzer Prize photographs from its inception in the early 1940s all the way up to the, the current winners, and that show was in 2005. Um, more recently, in 2006, we put together um, a wonderful exhibit on the work of the very famous commercial artist by the name of J.C. Leyendecker. J.C. Leyendecker uh, was probably one of the most prolific, uh, one of the most popular artists the first half of the 20th century. He was a mentor to Norman Rockwell, for example. He actually did more covers for the Saturday Evening Post. He beat Norman Rockwell by one. Uh, very, very popular. The museum happens to have one of, if not the largest collection of original works by J.C. Landecker, who within the last 10, 15 years has become increasingly popular. We spent a great deal of money restoring these because they're commercial. Uh, they were done for magazine covers mm -hmm. and advertising. They were never meant as fine art. So they really didn't receive the care that they should have received. So we, over a, about a decade, we conserved these works. We sent them out to various conservation facilities and had them worked on. This was expensive. We had everything framed. In 2006, during the museum's 75th anniversary, we had a special exhibition, and then we sent it out on a national tour. And those paintings have just recently come back within the last couple of weeks, and hopefully we will get it, be getting them back on display, um, I would hope, by... Uh, uh, late spring, early summer. So we talked a little bit about the importance of knowing Stockton history, but just what kind of history does this museum house on Stockton? Uh, soup to nuts. Uh, we, we basically take a look at Stockton before there was a Stockton with uh, our collections of Native American material and then carry it through Stockton's early development, uh, through its growing pains, the, the gold rush, its focus on the grain trade, a more diversified agricultural uh, economy, and uh, right up to the present time. We, you know, you never stop collecting. If you're a history museum, you've are always got an eye out to adding to your collections. Um, some of the major exhibits that we have here deal with Benjamin Holt, who um, basically made the Caterpillar track-type tractor a household word, and that was born right here in Stockton. We have a wonderful hall immediately below us, actually. You folks at home can't see this. Uh, <laughs> neither can we because we're looking through the floor. Um, we have exhibits that deal with Stockton history in general. We have some displays that deal with specific uh, parts of Stockton history. For example, the history of the Stockton Fire Department. Um, we have galleries that take a look at what life was like during the turn of the 19th to 20th century in some of our period rooms down in the storefronts area. Um, we have a California room that takes a look at California history from a unique angle. We take a look at it from a Stockton-centric standpoint. As you go through time, you become more and more focused on events as they related to the city of Stockton. So we have a great deal that deals with Stockton history. And of course, we also have a wonderful library archives with uh, a great deal of material. Researchers make use of our facilities. We have tens of thousands of photographs, books, manuscripts, ephemera, all dealing with various aspects of Stockton history. Of course, you could not get through an interview with Todd Ruschaller at the Hagen Museum 
without asking about the famous mummy. Yeah, Eretnet Haru, which I think might be the way to pronounce it. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're the one who said it, not me. <laughs> Somebody will correct me. Yeah, we had to ask. Um, the mummy had been in Stockton for over 60 years and then was um, recently returned from where it was borrowed. Um, but we did we did ask Todd about that. But it, it's good to know that now in, in present day 2016 that the mummy is on display at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco in the Legions of Honor in the exhibit titled The Future of the Past, Mummies and Medicine. And that's running right now until August of 2018. So if you miss the mummy, then go go check it out. Dude, I'm sure you've seen the mummy when it was in stock. Of course. I, I'm sure I'm one of my many school trips to the museum. Yeah, so we, we, we just had to ask him about the mummy. So we couldn't really do an interview at the Hagen without bringing up the mummy. Oh, <laughs> Oh, no, I, I don't know. Wait a minute. I don't know if I can go on. <laughs> it was not, a, not an approved question. Um, I've been blindsided. <laughs> Take off my microphone. I'm leaving the room. <laughs> um, do, you, do you still get people coming in looking for the mummy? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you cannot have had something on display for 65 years without some people coming in wanting to know where their old friend even if they haven't been in the museum in 15 years, they remember seeing it as a kid, and they want to see the mummy. And sadly, we have to tell them that after 65 years, the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco recalled their loan, which obviously they certainly uh, can and did do. And it's currently on display at the Legion of Honor in a special display called Very Postmortem. Um, runs into the um, spring, I believe. And then, I'm not sure, I, I believe they hope to put it on permanent display in a new antiquities area of the Dion. So uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that people will still be able to see their old friend. It just will be in the city by the bay. Do you get, to, do you get special visiting privileges since you've you know, housed it for so long? One would hope. <laughs> Uh, I haven't I haven't seen that that special pass yet, but uh, uh, yeah, I can I can dream. Did, did your attendance increase um, to the run up to to the, the oh, sure. leaving? Yeah, um, people realized that it wasn't going to be quite as easy as driving over to Victory Park to walk in and see their old friend. They were going to have to drive a little farther. So yeah, we had and we were also uh, cognizant of the fact that. Let's take this challenge and turn it into an opportunity for the museum. So uh, staff put together a number of special events relating to the departure of the, the mummy. And uh, we had a great number of people. And it was not the, the melancholy affair that I thought, you know, people weeping and, you know, wearing sackcloth and pulling their hair. And, um, it, it, it didn't have any of that. Um, people wrote... Um, you know, very touching remembrances of when they were uh, a little girl coming to visit the museum or how someone who lived close by would make it a point once a week to come over and, and take a look at the mummy. I think he was just making sure he's still here. Uh, he lived so close, he didn't want him wandering around. <laughs> and and all in all, it, it turned out to be um, a much easier parting uh, of the ways for us than I thought it was going to be. Okay. Great. Well, Todd, thanks so much for your time and letting us come and, uh, and, and invade the museum after dark. Certainly. Uh, Rod and I are hopeful that uh, things will maybe come alive as we're walking through. Well, yeah, you do, have to, you do have to get out before the Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton starts <laughs> running through the place. But uh, other than that, uh, uh, you're welcome to hang out as long as you want. As long as Robin Williams can save us, then we're good. Yeah, exactly. Be sure to check out all of the great stuff going on at the Hagen, like wagon, uh, on their website, hagenmuseum.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thehagenmuseum. Those California blues They make my heart 
up are highlights from episode 71 where matt and susan interview johnny milford back in september of 2013 i remember it like it was yesterday (laughs) having grown up listening to johnny on the air and then um you know meeting him many years later but to get him actually in the outback studio is a great uh it was a great interview i um i really enjoyed that one i i have a little johnny story back right after i graduated high school I took a broadcasting class at Delta with a friend of mine who was really into uh, radio and that kind of stuff. And we made a spoof radio spot where we did Johnny Milford on a tape. There's a tape somewhere of me (laughs) saying, I'm Johnny Midnight. Um, It was just one of the assignments that he gave us. And uh, that was always a fun class. He was a great teacher. (laughs) That's funny. And before we recorded the interview with Johnny, he was a good sport and let us have a little fun with a revised intro to the show. Welcome to Podcast Stockton for September 9th, 2013. Or was I supposed to say 2013? Uh, actually, Johnny, can you take that up from the top? That okay, was, uh, sorry. That was, that was terrible. Okay, hold on. That's terrible. Welcome to Podcast Stockton for September 9th, 2013. Uh, is this episode? Um, so, again, you're going you're gonna to come back a little bit because I don't know how to tell you. That, that just sucked. Um, can story, you go back a little bit further and okay. try it again? I, I think you're going to get How far back do you want me to go? Uh, from the beginning. Let's okay. do that. Welcome to Podcast Stockton from September 9th, 9th. That's a little too far, maybe. Yeah. Always taking too far. <laughs> Always. Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to Podcast Stockton for September 9th, 2013. And there was something else I was supposed to say? Your um, name. Dude, that, that was awesome. Oh, my name. Yeah, and then I'm Johnny Milford. And then you'll Let me get my driver's license just so I remember. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, Johnny. Let's try it one more time from the top. Welcome to Podcast Stockton for September 9th, 2013. I'm Johnny Milford. I'm Susan Spraker. And I'm Matt Beckwith. Welcome back to all of our returning listeners. If this is your first time listening to Podcast Stockton, thanks for checking out the show. We are joined live in the Outback Studio today. I'm so honored to have one of the, um, I would say, most recognizable voices in Stockton, uh, Mr. Johnny Milford. Johnny, thanks for uh, thanks for coming in the Outback Studio today. The honor is mine. Thank you very much. This wow. is awesome. Oh, I just I hear that voice and I, I get a little, I get like chills. Like, that's the guy. <laughs> that's the voice. It, it is. It's nausea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I've confused. I've confused good memories with nausea. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, it's it is an honor to have such a. Uh, I'm going to use a lot of big words. Or not not big words. I'm going to use a lot of words that will probably. Um, I got my dictionary. Oh, there you go. <laughs> a lot of words that that you probably won't want me to use when I refer to you, but a broadcasting legend, commercial radio spot legend in Stockton in the uh, in the Central Valley. It's it's an honor to have you here, and I'm you know I'll jump right into it. I know you from the radio. You yes. have you're more than just the radio, but uh, tell us how you got started in the radio business. Oh my gosh, are are you sure? It's a <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I worked. Um, I lived downtown when I was a little kid. We um, used to live in an old Victorian house that was right across the street from where the the new hotel and arena are right now at Fremont and Madison. Oh wow! And just this old beautiful Victorian house. And so I, when I was in second grade, about seven years old, going on eight. Uh, my brother won a contest on KJOY, which was 12.80 a.m. downtown. And so I tagged along with him one day after school to uh, go pick up a prize. And I walked in there, and it's my eyes just went, I was, oh, my gosh, this guy's sitting on the corner. And it was like this display fishbowl, we called it, you know, the booth. And this guy puts on headphones and talks, makes smart Alec comments and plays music and drinks coffee and gets paid for that. <laughs> That's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and so I knew pretty much from, from the age of, of seven that that's what I wanted to do. And I kept going down there all the time. Even when we moved north, I would um, catch the bus. I'm actually nervous talking to you. Can you believe that? Wow. I'm intimidated. 
I'm nervous. That's because of Susan. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I used to go down there all the time, and I kept in touch. Roy Williams was just a, a, a DJ when I first met him back in 1972, 73. And then he was promoted to program director and held that position for decades. And I met all the, the people down there and, and, like I said, just kept in touch. And then when it was time for me to uh, go to Delta, uh, I got into the radio program there and still knew the, the people at KJOY and was able to, to uh, finagle a part-time job there, which ended up being full-time. And, and that's, that's the wow. beginning, anyway. <laughs> wow, so KJ was the first station. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty much all I ever wanted to wear. I mean, I, I had dreams at one time of working like KFRC, San Francisco, oh, something boy. like that. But, but uh, you know, I, I felt very lucky just to have, you know, gotten that job at, at KJ, and I would have died happy if that's where it ended. But thankfully, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then it's amazing. A couple of years later, you fast forward, and, and then I got married to my... Uh, girlfriend 28 years ago yesterday by the way yeah happy anniversary yeah, you. congratulations Thanks. and then you know by at that time then money starts being a consideration I'm like man i really can't do this overnights at kjoy for 700 dollars a month much longer i need to i need to go make the big money at kwin <laughs> overnights for a thousand a month and <laughs> so that's i swear when i when i got that i was like oh i have arrived this is i could i could ride this for for years now yeah. $1,000 a month. Wow. That's, that's the gravy More than I'll ever need. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you must have been at Kwin when it was at the height, yeah, right, yeah. of its popularity. I mean, I remember in high school, um, you know, Kwin was the business. Right. So yeah. um, how do you think radio has changed in the Central Valley since you first got into it, Johnny? Oh, my gosh. I think it's changed uh, not just in the Central Valley, but just in general that um, when we grew up, I mean, radio uh, people were stars. And I mean, we still have stars. You've got, you know, uh, Howard Stern and, you know, the big radio stars like that. But, I mean, locally, on a local level, uh, you would see somebody, you know, or out in public or listen to them on the radio. And you think that, you know, that's somebody famous. It was a, a, a celebrity. And I don't, I don't think we have that as much. I mean, there, there's still some out there like that. But I, I don't think that people, especially younger people now, care as much about radios as we did when, when we were growing up. I hope I don't sound like that, the bitter old man that I am. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's true, though. I mean, you know, when I think back to, you know, when you were at KWIN and, you know, you and, you know, Mr. Bill mm -hmm. and Greg, yeah. I mean, you know, those people were, like you said, they were really local celebrities yeah. and, and had a real a voice and, and personality that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know is evident as much now. And it's no fault of the people in radio. No. I don't think, I mean, I think they're... Every bit is uh, talented people still on the radio, but corporate radio has come in and it's been over-researched uh, and over-thought. And mm -hmm. it used to be, I mean, I had such tremendous freedom back then. I, I'm so grateful for that. I, I didn't have a lot of people saying, oh, you can't do that and you, you have to do this and make sure you get it in seven seconds and then shut up and do that. And I mean, they really kind of gave me a little bit of framework within which to work and then said, you know, go for it. And uh, I was very grateful. I'm very lucky to have that. And I think now it's there's so many constraints. And, you know, you're lucky if outside of mornings, if you listen to somebody, I mean, they talk maybe two or three times an hour. Yeah. And it's really hard to have much of a personality-driven uh, radio station when it's just... I mean, we talked over every song, mostly. Yeah, right. It <laughs> was, I'm sure it's not nearly hate, the show. The listeners hated that, I'm sure. Stop, I'm trying to record this <laughs> song. Yeah, I'm trying to record it on my cassette <laughs> yeah, tape right. so I can make a mixtape for that girl I'm right. trying to see. <laughs> and that's the thing is that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have all that's of these. All, there was. all of these. I mean, you had radio, you had television, you had video games just really starting to hit the scene. And now, I mean, everything we need is right here. I'm holding up my phone for you guys to listen. I mean, everything's right here. I mean, I can listen to almost every radio station um, in the world on my phone. I can listen to podcasts on my phone. I can, there's so much. I can play games. I can do everything. And unless there's a real compelling reason to listen to the radio, I th more and more generations are going to be moving away from that, unfortunately. I mean, I still love the business. And I think you mentioned Amanda and Lucas, and I think they are a perfect example of people that are doing a great job within what radio has become i mean it's they do a, a great job i think dj walker over at cat country oh, yeah. great morning show so i mean the, there are still people out there that 
that do a good job, but um, it's just changed. And, and again, sounding like the bitter old man, when I was coming up in the business, I couldn't wait to to work for a big corporate. Back then, you had corporations like um, RKO General, and uh, I'm trying to think of a couple of others that, you know, they were the the big corporate corporations to work for in uh, in radio. And if you wanted to work in a large market, you, you wanted to... Emmis, I think, is, is one of them that comes to mind. After many years of being off the air, Johnny foreshadows his return to the airwaves. Shortly after this episode, he joins 105.9 The Bull. And, uh, and now, the only way I would ever get back into it is if it were a little mom-and-pop, small, you know, <laughs> not a sterile studio like they have now, just, yeah. you know, a little peanut whistle... Radio station, but good luck finding those. They don't exist anymore. Yeah, you know? right. And you're not certainly going to find one of those that's 50,000 watts in a major metro, right? right? So that's right. Yeah. Besides his regular radio voice, Johnny also has lots of other voices. In some of your radio spots, um, I mean, I always remember trying to think, okay, I can tell that the announcer is is Johnny Milford, but hmm. is that next voice you hear him? And clearly there must be spots that you've done that you've, you've oh, voiced yeah. all of them. Yeah, and in fact, there's one on my website that uh, it's it's uh, for the luggage center out of the Bay Area, hmm. and it was a Christmas spot. And a classical, classic uh, Johnny Milford situation where the client gave me several weeks, you know, come up with a, a spot. They wanted me to write it and, and come up with a little, um, you know, spec spot, basically, hmm. and I'm waiting to the last minute, and they're saying, hey, you got that spot ready? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm working on it. I'm sitting over <laughs> Barnes & Noble with my laptop going, oh, man, I have no idea what I... So I wrote something just, you know, with a, the stress of the deadline, and I came up with this Santa traveling spot. And it was back when, um, right after 9-11, and it was very difficult to fly. I mean, like it's any more of a pleasure now. Right. And you know, it was also not too long after they started charging overweight people for two seats. So I thought, oh, Let's let's deal with Santa having some travel issues and luggage luggage center will come to the rescue here. So I came up with this spec spot and I grabbed my wife. I said, "Put down that book. We're going home. I got to go record this real fast." And the whole idea was I would provide the voices just on spec. A spec spot is basically you show it, play it for the client, and they say, "Yeah, it's great, but we want to change this, this, and this." And I fully expected the client would say, "Okay, great, but bring in a voice for you can do this voice, but." Uh, we would need you to cast people for these voices. They bought it exactly. They didn't make a single change to it. Wow. And I did uh, Santa's voice. I did the um, the airport guy, yeah. you know, running through the uh, security checkpoint. The announcer. Um, there might have been one or two other voices. I can't remember. But um, That's yeah. not the one where you have Hank Hill in it. Oh, no. Oh, that's no, no. That's, that's <laughs> I think, uh, is that, that might just be my character demo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Bobby. <laughs> oh that's awesome thanks but i was thinking like up to up to now this interview has kind of been kind of a like yo i'm thinking about it back on the good old days of radio and things were good then but i have stories about how bad they were too oh wait i saw this semi-empty glass can i use this because i love doing this oh wait it's not there's not enough uh you have a vase in here? No. I have a bottle. Would you like to speak yeah, that into won't my work bottle? Either. Oh, okay. But I like uh, Darth Vader. You can always do a good Darth ah. Vader, whether it's a crappy impersonation or not. Just use a vase. Oh, there we go. <laughs> what a good producer. There it is. Look oh, at that. Look what? at that. What is that? That's his Emmy. <gasps> it is. I feel like there should be some fanfare okay, music that accompanies that. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Oh, okay. See, I'm bumping the mic now. It's, it kind of has it. Never mind. Wait, no, 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 that was good. No, 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 no. That was good. We want some more. This is CNN. No, no. Now we want one set. <laughs> yes. Give us that one. Give us How one about of those. that? This is Podcast Stockton. <laughs> I don't it. have any resonance this, this time of day. <laughs> this dusty old vase thing has never had more use than it did right now. Yeah. And now or purpose. I think perhaps purpose now. You can set me up for some kind of crime. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. I'm not paranoid. And, and I, I don't do nearly the volume of, of work that I once did, thanks to that uh, economic downturn that we all uh, experienced eh, back in uh, 2008. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Wowzy, wowzy, woo. No, but um, what was the question? Oh, yeah. 
What's your Stockton story? You've been here how long? Tell us. All my life. Yeah. 49 born years. Born and raised. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, born and raised. What I used to tell people, you don't think I'd move here, do you? <laughs> try to refrain from that, especially when I'm on a podcast Stockton <laughs> program. So it's a good thing I didn't go there. Um, but yeah, always, always been here. Never moved away. Wanted to many, many times. And especially in radio, because like I said, I mean, if you want any kind of career, um, you know, we, we looked at opportunities in many cities and, and markets. And my ultimate goal would have been San Francisco. And I thought that would be cool. And maybe even commute over there and make San Francisco wages while living in Stockton. Bring it back here. Now it seems like everybody does that with, with you know, their job. I and mean, that was before people really commuted like they do now. Right. And uh, now I think, no way would I do that. That's that's just throwing away like <laughs> five hours of your life every day driving back and forth. So you've lived here your whole life. Yes. You're a, a proud Lincoln graduate. Yes. So, uh, again, we just find more and more Lincoln graduates that just come out of the woodwork. Go mm-hmm. Trojans. I, I'm sorry. I have to, I have to put it in there. Go yeah. Trojans. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, you guys are, <laughs> you guys are too, uh, too fancy for me. Lincoln. We were just fine. waiting for you to come over and party with us. I don't know where, I don't know <laughs> where, where you, you were. Go? It's okay. Oh, come on. I, you know, one was block, wannabe Lincoln. one block, it was one block North of Hammer Lane. We <laughs> yeah. got See, bust was, 45 minutes to Tokyo. He was in the hood. <laughs> well, that's a weird thing about that area uh, of of North Stockton around Hammer Lane and and Davis Lower Sacramento Road, and yeah. because you've got Lincoln Unified, and then you've, it it becomes Lodi Unified, and then a little bit Across north, the street, it's, yeah, it's Stockton, it's Stockton Unified it's pockets. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's very so, very bizarre. And before they built Stockton Unified, built the high schools, the newer high schools. If you lived like on Ponce de Leon, you went all the way down to Edison for high school. Oh, I mean, how weird is that? That's just insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, it didn't foster the neighborhood, you know, community. No, it didn't. Thing. You're right. But hopefully that's back now. It is. With a vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear Johnny on 105.9 The Bull and follow him on Twitter and Instagram, username ProdGod. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the highlights from interviews with previous guests. First up was Todd Rustaller from 2010 and local radio legend Johnny Milford from 2013. We'd love to hear your feedback. Call or text at 209-565-3229 or email us at podcaststockton at gmail.com. You can also find us online at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, username podcaststockton. And the music for today's show is Red, White, and You by Austin James from his new album, Full Throttle. Check him out on iTunes and check him out on Instagram at austinjames209. Podcast Stockton is Matt Beckwith, Rod Gomez, Susan Spraker, Manuel Montez, and me, Greg Barr. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Make it great, Stockton. What happened to and until next time? What, did I not say it? No. Until next time, make a great stocking. <laughs>